I would also say intellectual humility within itself has proven to be very important in the studies of group performance and team performance and collective intelligence. If you have more intellectually humble leaders, that becomes kind of contagious and spreads to the whole of the team so that everyone becomes a little bit more likely to listen to other people and to accept their mistakes. And then that actually improves the whole group's performance as a result. Welcome to the Old Wisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. Thank you for uh, rating us and providing positive feedback that you have done so far on various platforms. Today, we will be talking about intelligence traps and how intelligence may not be everything. And it's uh, our privilege to have a special guest who is uh, not only somebody who is very knowledgeable about this topic, but also uh, tries to communicate about it with a broad audience. We have uh, David Robson, who is a science journalist, was previously at a new scientist and now a senior sci- uh, journalist at BBC Future, where he specializes in psychology, neuroscience and medicine. David, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's completely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. First, I'll pass it on to Charles, who will introduce the topic a little bit. So, David, you've written this book, The, in- the Intelligence Trap. We're going to be talking a lot about that today. Um, fascinating stuff. Um, but I'm kind of interested in taking a little step back from that. I was looking at your portfolio, and you have written about a lot of stuff. I mean, there's there's some pretty crazy stuff on there. There's some stuff about vampires. There's um, stuff about being people being too beautiful for their own good. Uh, lots of stuff about language, secret languages, learning multiple. You know, you have covered a huge area. Let's say I'm really interested. What you, you you've picked? This is your first book, right? So right. you're writing all sorts of articles, and then you decided right, I'm going to give three years, four years, I don't know, to one project. So that's a big commitment, especially when you have such a broad range. I'm really interested, what was it about this area that you were like, yeah, that's the one, not the vampires, not the language, this is the one for me. So what's going on there? Yeah, yeah, great question. I mean, so I guess like from very young, you know, I've been interested in this idea of intelligence tests. So when I was kind of about 10 years old, like most people in the UK, um, at that point, I had to kind of take this uh, intelligence test to decide which secondary school I could go to. That's common, especially Mm -hmm. in Kent and around London. Mm. And even then, I kind of, I was really interested, like, what was this test actually meant to be measuring? And you know, like how transferable were all of those kind of skills that it was meant to be looking at. You know, it seemed quite abstract. There were lots of verbal questions, lots of numerical questions and spatial questions. So you were, you were getting quite meta about it, even at that age. That's probably a sign yeah. of high intelligence, surely, to question the very test itself. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, you know, that had always been in my past. But then, like, as I was kind of working as a science journalist, like I would interview some of these like really brilliant minds but I also came across lots of stories of like these really clever people acting quite stupidly in a way that just didn't make sense (laughs) um so one of my favorite examples is that guy Paul Frampton who was a brilliant physicist um and I I think Igor has also talked to me about um Paul Frampton but he you know was online (laughs) dating and he started like talking to this person who claimed to be 
a glamour model called Denise Milani. Mm -hmm. And eventually they arranged to meet up. Only when he got to La Paz, Bolivia, which was where they were meant to be meeting, uh, somehow it turned out that Milani couldn't be there. But she asked Frampton if he could just pick up her suitcase that she'd left behind and take it with him to their next meeting. It sounds a bit um, dodgy. Like, by right, by so, now, I'd probably be going, wait a minute, this, this, this smells a rat. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what <laughs> most people would be thinking. But Frampton, despite being such a, a brilliant and creative mind, didn't seem to be assessing that risk in the same way as other people. Mm. So uh, he took this suitcase with him and was arrested for carrying two kilograms of cocaine during a stopover in Argentina. Um, and that just seems so strange to me, you know, and it wasn't just him being kind of absent-minded or scatty. Like, he really had just missed some serious red flags there mm. repeatedly. And so that was really the kind of story that really got me thinking about what do we actually mean about intelligence and how does it relate to decision-making? Right, in the real world as such. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm interested in taking another look at this in regards... The context, uh, Igor and I often talk when we're not on air, we often talk about Brexit. And as you know, <laughs> Brexit's going to be happening on Friday, of course. You know, oh, if everything, yeah, yeah, that's definitely going to go ahead. I was just interested in the timing of this book. And I wondered, mm. in terms of this whole, you know, Michael Go Gove quote about, uh, I think people in this country have had enough of experts. It, could your book be misinterpreted as a bit of like you know, elite bashing? You know, I, I've read it, so it isn't yeah. that. I can, I know that. But right. do you know what I mean? It's like, how do you, attack the sort of elites uh, without sort of eroding faith in our experts you know and, and how do you walk that line because it's a tricky one right yeah 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 that is tricky and definitely that's not really what i would want people to be taking away from the book so yeah. kind of throughout i did try to make it quite clear that i'm making this kind of distinction here where i'm saying that intelligence and expertise and education obviously are hugely important and like I would never suggest that people should kind of do away with those things or, mm. you know, that you should aspire to be less less intelligent in some right. way. Right. Uh, but I guess it's just I also think it's important to recognize that even these intelligent expert people do have these kind of foibles and frailties. And if you just, like, turn a blind eye to that fact, actually, you're letting a huge amount of error and foolish decision-making still persist in the world, which I think we have done over the last century. And that has these really serious consequences. So in my book, I talk about these kind of terrible miscarriages of justice or mm. doctors' diagnostic errors, which are surprisingly common and kill more people than breast cancer. But again, we've kind of almost turned a blind eye to that in some way and assumed that once these people had all the expertise and knowledge that itself was enough. Yeah. So in a way, I'm, I'm saying that we, we need expertise and we need education, but we also need more than that. We need to change the way we're educating people so that they actually apply their um, knowledge and expertise and intelligence in a more, not just productive, but in a wiser way. That's the line I'm getting to, is that actually right. even the experts can do better. Yeah, and I suppose a couple of things that occur there is we should be concerned perhaps more about the errors that intelligent people make because they're often in positions where their decisions influence huge numbers of people. So they really need to be under the microscope. Yeah, uh, that's exactly clear. I mean, they have more responsibility and it's mm. more important for them to kind of recognise those errors, I think. And it's not just important for the individual, it's important for the whole of society that we do recognise that fact. 
I mean, there are, by the way, there were books in the past bashing the intellectuals and the elites. I mean, there is in fact a book called The Intellectuals. I was fairly inspired by this like, when I started reading about uh, Karl Marx and his misdoings on Rousseau and other people. But the intention there by the author was he was like highly conservative person from the U.S., a historian, I think, of a very right-wing leaning. And so his point was to take all these left-wing superstars uh, right. and uh, show how they were faulty in terms of their moral character. But I think that's the wrong message. And I think that's exactly that. Uh, like if you think about a single person and you always assume that they will be wise excellent, just let's say excellent in all aspects yeah. of their uh, decision-making. And that's just a wrong assumption. And I think we talked about that on the podcast before. That, uh, we should not be making the assumption of some kind of unified uh, decision-making apparatus that would help you to solve all sorts of problems in your life. Because that's not quite what seems to be happening. It's really uh, different for some domains than for others. So this Frampton may be an excellent physicist, but <laughs> But really not that well versed in social matters and didn't listen to advice from his friends, created some kind of vision of the future where he will possibly escape with that, uh, uh, with, with those drugs and save his uh, yeah. a loved one and she will embrace him. But that sort of, uh, maybe yeah, that's yeah. what he thought, who knows? Uh, but the point is that he just didn't read on the social cues because yeah. that's possibly the part that he was missing. Anyway, so just maybe another way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with all of that. Yeah, like you say, it's this idea that actually there are lots of different ways of, of thinking um, and we can't just assume that kind of having one element like mm -hmm. intelligence is going to guarantee good decision-making everywhere in all different aspects of your life. So I would like to dive right into this then. And um, the our listeners probably are interested uh, your take on uh, what you uh, what you encountered when you talked to various people, what are the traditional ways how intelligence is defined? Because we, we have, in everyday language, um, the term intelligence. We also have smarts, and we often, I think, we often conflate those two. But how is it traditionally defined? Right. So my understanding is that from a scientific perspective, we've had this idea of general intelligence, which is that right. kind of underlying brain power that uh, we've kind of been alluding to. And th there's good evidence that that does exist in some form. So, for example, it is the reason why if you're good at maths, you're probably pretty good at, like, literature and humanities and science as well at school. You know, like, some people do find it easier to learn more quickly. And that's what I think the idea of general intelligence and IQ tests were really getting at, was this capacity to process complex information and to learn quickly. But, you know, there's always been some controversy over that. I guess. Um, so you have people like Robert Sternberg, who's really been quite an influential figure. And he has done these tests on like um, practical intelligence, for instance, which kind of looks at your ability to implement your goals, the kind of tacit rules and uh, assumptions you're making to kind of carry out a project and to plan it and to preempt problems. And he has found that doesn't correlate so well with measures of analytical intelligence or or kind of general intelligence that we've been talking about. So that suggests there maybe is this, that like we've just been saying, that maybe general intelligence, as important as it is, isn't maybe as general as we had once assumed. Yeah, you also wrote in your book uh, about termites, 
at Terman. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh, this character, because Terman is an interesting character. He was one of the founders of the intelligence testing in the U.S., and uh, he was a strong believer, right, that, if I understood it right, that... Uh, Basically, in order to be moral, you need to have this uh, capacity. You cannot be a morally uh, sound person, have good moral character without having this general intelligence. So that for him, that was everything. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, he, in some ways, I feel like he almost um, personifies the intelligence trap in some ways, because he did have these very firm beliefs from very early on in his career that intelligence was the most important thing about a person. Um, and like you say, he kind of assumed that it, it wasn't just your success at school, it was any kind of professional or creative success, and your morality all depended on this one number, uh, which he had really helped to adapt and popularize the IQ test. And then he kind of took it to all of the schools in California to find these genius children with an IQ of over 140 and these are the termites that you mention. And then he tracked them throughout their life, hoping to prove this fact that um, their IQ would mean that they were really the creme de la creme of American society. Yeah. So what did he find? I mean, so to a certain extent, you know, they did perform better than the average American, uh, which would seem to support his idea. But the mm -hmm. problem is that he hadn't controlled for lots of other factors. I mean, a lot of these children just came from very rich families, uh, you know, wealthy oh, areas of California. Um, he also didn't really have a very ethnically diverse sample, partly because of his own racial prejudices. That he didn't even think it was worth trying to test the um, kind of ethnic minorities in the area. And actually, when you try to account for all these different factors, it turns out that, you know, maybe the termites just weren't as exceptional as you would hope. They still perform a bit better, but they're not nearly as successful or kind of um, influential as Terman would have imagined when he first started right. testing them. And there were lots of really disappointing cases there with people who just didn't feel like they'd lived up to their potential at all, which I think speaks to this wider issue that, you know, you can have the intelligence, but you do need to be taught how to use it as well. You probably feel like picked as a child from very early on and you're, you're a genius. And you have to, you know, really use your uh, genius potential for genius things. And don't you dare playing with other kids or mm. doing some uh, arts or painting because that's yeah. not what your genius is for. And then uh, that, that's a very uh, peculiar uh, developmental trajectory. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I really think there was a lot of resentment in later life that they had been labeled in this way. But then, yeah, hadn't really, you know, lived the life they wanted to live. What well, kind of what did that mean? That that I think Igor, you mentioned that Terman thought that you couldn't be moral unless you were intelligent. Is that because is that he's just saying intelligence is a good, and uh, that he just threw the, threw the two ideas together, or or was he sort of getting at you had to have a certain level of intelligence for your decision, your moral decisions to be kind of your own and thought through? It's just because I, I just saw uh, a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Uh, over the, over the right. weekend, uh, it was filmed in the local cinema in West Norwood. The, you know the scene, the oh, famous wow. scene when his eyes are like pinned open, uh, you know, and they're yeah. showing. Um, yeah. That was actually filmed. I can't watch that scene. That's yeah. so so brutal. Well, yeah. It was show. It was filmed in the cinema in West Norwood, and I, I watched the uh -huh. film in that cinema. Um, so it was quite a oh, strange experience. But, um, 
but you know one of the things it gets at is you know he's being good later in the film but because he doesn't have any ability to do bad does it really count as moral and i just thinking with this intelligence uh, and morality thing that you're referring to terman was was kind of uh, interested in did he did he think you needed you needed to have a certain level of intelligence to for your decisions to count as moral is that what he meant yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that is exactly what he felt like. I mean, he had kind of, he used some anecdotes of, you know, prostitutes and hobos and criminals right. who had apparently shown to, uh, been shown to have low IQs. And from mm. this, he did extrapolate this idea that if you don't have a high IQ, you just can't really think through your uh, kind right. of moral questions. You don't know the difference between right and wrong. And, you know, Terman had some quite really dubious ideas you know he supported eugen the eugenics movement at mm. one point and i think that's all related to this really that yeah. he felt like you know we need to aspire for society to have greater intelligence because then society as a whole will flourish because of this kind of connection between intelligence and morality as well as other measures of success interesting i, I think he wanted to sterilize people i mean as yeah. part of the eugenics movements who were not as smart uh, who he considered to be uh, of uh, not not uh, good enough material and i mean if you think about yeah. it a lot of it was also in a uh, in the framework of some some sort of a class war between the the, the middle class and the rich and uh, who were uh, considered to be intelligent and the working class poor, uh, including the prostitutes and many other people yeah. who had to go into, into this alternative career path, so to say, yeah. you know, to make a living. And for him, they were undesirable and uh, should not have kids and offspring. Uh, but I, uh, to put him in the context, though, yeah, I think that you did that in your book too. Uh, the, he was not unique in that opinion. That that a lot of American scientists and Western European scientists at that time shared that perspective. Uh, but uh, he did go to the extreme, being the leading figure uh, on uh, uh, intelligence, and I think he linked it specifically to the genetic materials. So for him, it was all about some kind of genetic endowment. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, it's totally right that he did, you know, that he was very much a product of his time. But what I do find interesting is that there were other contemporaries who didn't hold those views. And uh, in fact, oh, the kind of creator of the original IQ test in, or the original intelligence test in Paris was Alfred Binet. And he had kind of right. warned of, he called it a brutal pessimism, that you could take one score on one test and use that to predict someone's whole trajectory in life. Now, when Terman translated that test and applied this new measure of scoring to create the intelligence test that we talk about today, he must have been aware of those criticisms right from the start. And he just seems to have dismissed them. And so that really, to me, seems like, um, mm. in some ways, its own intelligence trap in that he had his uh, very fixed beliefs and he wasn't really listening to the logic of any other arguments uh, that contradicted those beliefs. Right. And I mean, Binet, I think, was also emphasizing, as we talked about earlier, uh, the, this founder of intelligence testing, uh, if you think about it, uh, uh, was emphasizing that whatever you measure, this mental ability in kids uh, who can who do well in school versus do not well yeah. in school has to be put in the context of the uh, culture that they live in in a given moment uh, where they're coming from. And so this is not the whole range of what you can test. There are many other possible, possible types of intelligence that this test is not measuring. Uh, here, I think it was very, very... Um, 
strong in his opinion about that. But unfortunately, he wrote everything in French, and uh, no uh, American wanted to read it or could read it. Uh, maybe he probably just wanted to read it at yeah. that time. Well, let's uh, move a tiny bit further from the just intelligence as uh, uh, this crude power, uh, whatever it means, of uh, quickly making decisions to uh, the link to rationality. And uh, there is this idea that intelligent people are rational people. Uh, but in your book, you suggest that it's not necessarily the case. And there are cases of dysrationalia. And maybe that's what uh, was associated with this uh, brilliant physicist. But maybe there was also something else going on there. So what's the difference between these two capabilities, to be rational and to be intelligent, as defined by classic intelligence tests? Yeah. So, I mean, you would, I think the kind of average person would expect that if one thing comes with greater intelligence, it's greater rationality. You know, yeah. if you look in popular culture, like if someone's got high intelligence, they're a bit like like Lisa Simpson or, you know, or maybe like or a Mr. classic Spock. kind of scientist or Mr. Spock. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's like right. pe- people who do have a more detached view of the world. But that's not really the case. And to understand why, you really need to look at the work of people like Daniel Kahneman with his like seminal research on cognitive bias. So all of these kind of thinking errors that we can make, especially when we're feeling more intuitive rather than analytical. Um, so the one of my favorite ones is the sunk cost bias, where you kind of, you are so attached to your initial investment in a project that rather than letting it fail, you'll actually pour more and more money into it, even if the cost of that becomes even greater than your initial investment. And so, you know, I think like Daniel Kahneman had never really spoken about intelligence himself. But there is this great work by Keith Stanovich, who's um, in Toronto, uh, quite near you, Igor. And he he has really shown that actually your susceptibility to those kinds of biases isn't very closely connected to your intelligence at all. Intelligence probably helps a tiny bit to protect you, but you can still have very intelligent people who are very biased because right. they're largely kind of orthogonal skills, as we say. And that's this concept of dysrationalia. It's where you have someone who is really intelligent but very irrational so Paul Frampton, right. I think, would fit very well into that kind of framework. Well, can I just, in the, sorry, I just on that point, I'm like, I, I think a listener would still be confused why, if someone was intelligent, on a sort yeah. of, because we were talking earlier saying, okay, maybe people who are book smart might have difficulty translating that intelligence into the real world, and that's the sort of, you know, yeah. practical intelligence, tacit stuff. That sort of makes yeah. sense. I think people will get that. But if if um, a book smart kind of person is given a test that is about rationality, I would have thought most listeners would have thought, you know, in absence of distractions and and meeting models in South America with you know suitcases of cocaine, <laughs> that yeah. that that intelligence would translate into a good score on a, on a test of rationality. So there, there's something missing, I think, in the public understanding yeah. here. Maybe you can help me with that a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me think about this. So I, I think like. There's a couple of issues there, but I think one element of some of these tests of rationality that's quite important is that they often have like an intuitively obvious answer and Mm -hmm. then a a kind of the real answer you have to think much more carefully and slowly to get to. Now, I think like what lots of intelligent people are doing, as well as unintelligent people, but what the general tendency, no matter what your intelligence is, is to always just go with the kind of thing that feels right. It seems obvious, so you don't think about it mm. too carefully. Mm. Um, and so that is one reason why on these tests, they're cleverly designed so that you, you just might not be gaming it. Um, you're just 
you still have that kind of intuition that you you feel attracted to. That's kind of interesting because that might mean someone who is known or their identity is wrapped up in being quite good at this sort of thing. Yeah. If an answer springs to mind and then they know that they're good at this sort of thing, they might even be less likely to question it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there aren't many biases where it seems like the more intelligent people are actually more susceptible to them. Right. The, I mean, one of them that does seem to correlate positively with intelligence is the gambler's fallacy. So that's the idea that if you throw eight heads of a coin, then a tails has to be more likely afterwards because <laughs> to kind of even out the probability. Um, that's also right. called the uh, Monte Carlo fallacy because, you know, people have lost a lot of money in right. casinos on mm. roulette wheels because of this. And more intelligent people, for some reason, are actually more susceptible to that. So, yeah, I think there is is an interesting kind of link here. But I think what intelligence really does amplify in some ways is these kind of confirmation biases um, in certain situations where you have like a very emotional attachment to something, uh, to an idea or belief. So it could be something like Brexit, or it could be something like uh, climate change. And what you have right. there is that the more intelligent people are just better at kind of justifying their beliefs and demolishing the arguments of those that disagree with them. And so in that sense, the kind of intelligence and in education actually amplifies the Mm. motivated reasoning we call it mm. so you can your intelligence can actually make you more wrong in that case so uh, i mean by the way uh, to our listeners we probably are not advocating that iq uh, is not important at all and it's right. completely unrelated to rationality and i think that's what charles was trying to point out there is a positive relationship yeah. it's just that in many cases it is very very modest mm. and it's not enough just to measure how good you are at matching different patterns or identifying a piece of a puzzle which are so these are some of the most classic IQ tests uh, that you can find to predict uh, your uh, general rationality, your understanding of biases and fallacies, especially in the context of daily lives. Yeah. Okay, this is making sense. So the, the, the bits where they fall down might be the more the sort of biasy parts of the test. Because I understand this um, this Stanovich test is a sort of a, an amalgam of testing some more sort of kind of abstract stuff and testing some of the biases. That is, it's kind of a mix of these kind of different skills, is it not? Is that right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So he has some kind of tests of um, probabilistic reasoning, for example, or scientific reasoning that you would expect to correlate more strongly with intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and then he also has these kind of tests of the classic biases like uh, framing or anchoring or uh, sunk costs, like we mentioned, or temporal discounting. So whether you're more likely to uh, kind of put off an immediate reward for one that comes later. And overall, he does find across the test that there is this very reasonable correlation between intelligence and rationality. But he, he compares it to something like dyslexia. So reading ability does correlate with intelligence. But you also have a, a very reasonable number of people who, um, because of dyslexia, really struggle to read, despite being intelligent in yeah. all other ways. And so he says dysrationalia is very much like this. The correlation is low enough that it leaves plenty of room mm. for a sizable population to be intelligent but irrational in the ways that we've described. Yeah, I think one thing that most people are like a, a well, I was going to say a common myth that's kind of giving away the ending. But one thing that 
I imagine the average man on the street would agree was like, if you're trying to take an important decision, best thing is just keep emotions out of it. Emotions are things which can lead you astray. And you have to be like Mr. Spock. You've got to look at the numbers. You've got to pros and cons. You've got to be completely hyper emotionless about taking important decisions. But I was really interested in your book. You were saying, actually, thinking is changing on this. This isn't really the way forward. In fact, sometimes ignoring your emotions can lead to less rational decisions. And conversely, being aware of your emotions actually is really key if you want to make a more rational decision. I think this will surprise a lot of people. And um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about this. So could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I totally agree with you, but I feel like the kind of common assumption is that emotions can only lead your decision-making astray. And yet, actually, there is now some very good work, some of it by Antonio Damasio, um, who wrote that um, famous book, Descartes' Error, but also lots of recent work that has shown that people who struggle with kind of perceiving and understanding their emotions, whether just through a kind of general kind of problem or sometimes more specifically due to brain injury but these people actually you know report not feeling any emotions but they actually then suffer from terrible decision making often they just get stuck in this kind of analysis paralysis where they can't decide anything Mm -hmm. because they don't have an emotional reaction to guide them at all Uh, but other times they can just be totally rash as well maybe because they don't have any kind of emotions warning them to kind of take time and to think more carefully about the decision making. So in both cases it's it's a really bad scenario. Yeah, this I was just I've heard of this thing that yeah. you talk about Damasio's idea of a somatic the somatic mar- marker hypothesis and I've yeah. I've sort of it sort of crossed my path a few times and I've thought always thought I should find out really what that's right. about. So what, how does that work? Like how does the body like like store an emotion and how's that useful? How can we be sure it's even something we should pay attention to? Oh, big question. Big question. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do my best to keep it uh, relatively simple. But I think the idea is that actually your kind of non-conscious brain is doing so much processing without you uh, necessarily being aware of exactly what, what is going on. Um, And that this non-conscious processing creates a bodily reaction. So, you know, it could be a change in your skin conductance because you're sweating slightly because you're mm. anxious. And you might not even really know why you're anxious, but your body's reacting anyway. Mm. Um, or it could be that your heart is racing. You know, we have all of these kind of somatic markers, they're called, that um, are automatic reactions to situations. And then the kind of emotion perception comes when we're kind of conscious of those changes and we put a label on it. Right. Um, And so it's this kind of feedback loop in a way that you have. Now, the people that Damasio had studied, they were just really struggling to kind of make and read those somatic markers. And that seems to have been the big problem. And that in turn was affecting their decision making. Um, And Damasio makes this argument that actually we have this kind of huge library of wisdom that our brain is capable of processing unconsciously. But we can only access that by being aware of our emotions. And if you take that Mm. away you really impair our decision making. So this this is kind of uh, getting at ideas like a gut feeling about something. People often have a gut feeling about like they go for a job yeah. interview and they're like, ah, I just, mm, I can't put my finger on it. There's something I didn't like about that potential boss or something. Yeah. Is this the sort of thing we're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. It, it can be a bit more general than that as well. So there's been some really interesting recent work looking at kind of memories. So say like with prospective memory, That's uh, kind of remembering to do something in the past, like call your mom on her birthday. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And we actually seem to use these somatic markers, this kind of bodily awareness, 
to as a kind of reminder in a way. You know, like you, I think everyone can identify with that feeling that we know there's something we have to do, mm. and then you kind of rack your brain and you mm. remember what it is. Right, right. Uh, and people who are less aware of their bodily feelings for whatever reason actually have worse prospective memories because of that, because they're not picking up on those signals. They're telling them to kind of stop what they're doing and try to remember. So basically, if you're not paying attention to this this information, you're missing out on a huge component that could be useful in taking that rational decision. Yeah, that's exactly it. Now, that also comes with a caveat that your intuitions can also be swayed by a whole host of really kind of irrelevant information as well. So, you know, it's very sunny today in London, and that's put me in a better mood. Now, if I was interviewing a candidate for a job, I might mistake that good mood for being really impressed with their skills when actually it's just caused by the weather. So it can work both ways. (laughs) Um, And so I think like what's really interesting in terms of rationality is that you want to be able to pick those apart. You want to be a bit more conscious and reflective of what might be causing you to have these gut reactions. And that's indeed what scientists have found is that people who are better are more sensitive to their emotions but then are also better able to kind of label and identify them are actually a lot more rational in their decision making they're more successful in their decision making because they can use that emotional information but they're not ruled by it so you're saying it's not just hey sense your emotions go with your emotions you're missing out you should follow your emotions all the time you're actually saying they they can be uh, completely uh, they could take you in the wrong direction as well, but the first step is yeah. to at least bring them up to the level of awareness so you can sort of get your scalpel out and start picking away at what's relevant and what isn't. Yeah, that's exactly it. So mm. one of my favourite studies in that area was by Lisa Feldman Barrett, who was looking at investments on a stock market. Mm. And she found that the best investors were actually the most emotional in some ways. They had very strong feelings, but they were also better able to label those feelings using very precise language. So, you know, they didn't just say, I feel kind of bad today or good today, you know, very vague terms. They would be able to say whether they were joyous or excited or whether they felt anxious or a sense of doom or Mm. uh, just sad or just a bit tired. You know, it was really that ability that seemed to help them to dissect their feelings and to realize when they were being swayed too much by an irrational emotion like For example, with an investor, if you feel a keen sense of loss, you might also be tempted to make an even bigger investment to try to win it back. But these emotionally aware investors, despite having the strong feelings, were able to resist that kind of Mm. temptation. Okay, well that that's that does make sense. In this, again, I'm thinking of uh, someone who's listening to this. Yeah. You know, ten minutes ago we were saying, oh, actually, emotions. You've got to pay attention to your emotions, but we're not saying, therefore, you have to impulsively act on your emotions. You're, just, <laughs> you're saying no. it's part of the picture, um, and you do yourself a disservice to not uh, clock it. Yeah, and the worst thing, if you're not aware of your emotions at all, is that you may well still be swayed by them in some mm. way. You know, like I was saying with the example. Uh, of the it being a sunny day and that kind of persuading you to hire a candidate, mm. you know, someone who's not not conscious of those emotions will still be feeling them, and they're just then they can't account for them and you know use that information to make a rational decision. I don't think I'm particularly good at paying attention to my emotions. Um, is it? And it, I'd like to be. I mean, it it, yeah. it seems really useful, not just to be a sort of sensitive guy, but like. To be able to take right. it. the idea, it appeals to me a lot more now. This idea that actually can help me be more rational. Um, so, yeah. how could, is this is this something that we can get better at? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's loads of ways you can kind of tune your emotional compass, as I call it in my book. So mindfulness practices do seem to improve your emotional awareness a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's because they can train interoception, your bodily awareness, which, as we've uh, discussed, is like the kind of like the first step of emotional awareness. Mm. But you can also train that kind of emotional perception and differentiation, as we call it. So Lisa Feldman Barrett had found that maybe uh, just say, 20 minutes of introspection, kind of encouraging these participants to try to dissect their emotions using those precise terms, could actually have lasting effects. And even over the next week, you could see a difference in their behavior because of it. Mm. They, It seems to be a kind of mindset that you can slip into if you make the effort, which is incredibly encouraging. So that's just to be clear. So there's two distinct words that might sound similar on a podcast you have interoception and you have introspection right and interoception that's the kind of bodily awareness that's the mm. sense of uh you know whether your heart is beating fast or slow um some people aren't very good at telling those differences other people are a very simple test is just to get a friend to take your pulse mm. and to just sit quietly and for a minute just try to count your own heartbeats now if the number of heartbeats you counted is close to the more kind of reliable measure of your friend then you have good interoception if they're way off then you probably do need to do this interoceptive training through right. something like mindfulness. Right. And um, I think in your book, you say that art, performing artists who say perhaps, I don't know, a cellist or a dancer, you know, they're, they're mm. practicing that feedback loop quite a lot. So they would, they would be training this skill regularly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it makes sense with dance to me because you do have to kind of be very aware of your, your body signals and what it's telling you to perform. Mm. Um, singing as well is, uh, it seems to me to make intuitive sense because you have to be very conscious of the you know tiny movements in your mm. throat that are mm. producing these sounds. So yeah, there are lots of different ways you can do this besides mindfulness. I've, I have seen a paper and it seems quite early evidence, but that also suggests that just doing kind of sports and being generally more athletic can help as well. Interesting. I, and I just, the final point on that was, I think in the book you say that it can lead to greater interoception can lead to greater empathy as well because of this idea that we perhaps you know copy the you know we pick up on other people's emotions by sort of mirroring them in, in physically yeah exactly I, I think that's very true you kind of your uh, there's been lots of studies showing that your facial expressions for example mm. might mimic someone or you know, if they feel anxious, you might feel anxious too. Your heart might start racing a little bit as you mirror them. Mm. But if you have better interoception, you're more conscious of that. And so you are better able to read those signals that they're giving you and your body is then kind of translating for you. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I, from, uh, I think Lisa Feldman Barrett gives an example that you quoted in your book about, you know, you still need to be sensible about how you interpret this interoception uh, yeah. data because she, there's a story about her going on a date, I think. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, she's, it's very funny, actually. I would definitely recommend uh, that any listeners uh, read her book, How Emotions Are Made. But yeah, she's very funny right. in this anecdote about how she <laughs> had arranged the second date, then kind of got into her flat, put the keys down and just brought up on the floor. Right. And then she realized that actually it wasn't love, it was right. um, gastric blue instead. <laughs> so, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, just uh, one more minor point, and this is just me in, uh, putting my critical scientist hat mm -hmm. on, uh, Paul. 
listeners, uh, a lot of the mindfulness work uh, that is along those lines is currently being examined for the actual empirical insights because some of it is being currently scrutinized for the validity of some of the findings. So I would recommend you to be careful about saying, like, if I just do any mindfulness exercise, I would right away become much more tuned to my feelings and become so much more a rational human being. That will probably not happen. Uh, So we have to be careful. It's really more about the uh, potentially attunement of your uh, sensory and uh, internal processes in the sense that uh, you would recognize how you feel and uh, how you do in various ways. And often in our lives, because of the sedentary lifestyle that we have, we don't do that. Yeah, yeah, I would totally agree with that. And, you know, uh, some of the studies have seen seem to show an improvement after just one session of mindfulness. But I would absolutely say that, you know, this kind of uh, building your interoception seems to be something that you need to work on for you know, months and months to see the best effects. And mindfulness absolutely isn't the only way to do that. Right. So I would like to move to another final uh, segment of our episode today. And um, this brings in more sort of a meta perspective where we would like your feedback on, uh, David. So one question that I have is, so if intelligence, if high intelligence doesn't really help, the way how intelligence tests are measuring doesn't really uh, help us make better decisions all the time, or not necessarily help us make better decisions, Why is it put on a pedestal? Why do we celebrate it above everything else? Uh, uh, What is your sense uh, from interviewing different researchers and also working on it at the intersection of science and sort of public outreach for many years? Yeah, I mean, I think that's there's so many different possible answers to that question. So, I mean, someone like Robert Sternberg feels that he's the guy who came up with the kind of practical intelligence test and the creative intelligence test. And he feels there's a kind of institutional inertia with this. It's just very difficult to get huge institutions like the education system to change their mind. And so he would argue that even though we don't really use IQ tests in schools so much, uh, we use things like the SATs in America that are very similar to IQ tests. They correlate very strongly. They're still measuring that one type of intelligence. And, you know, those intelligence tests do still correlate with the things that do matter in education. You know, they do predict your academic achievement Mm. uh, pretty well, actually. So, It would be wrong to kind of get rid of those because they are still successful. And I think they have continued because they are still pretty successful. But I think the idea that someone like Robert Sternberg, and I would also advocate for this, would be to try to expand it and to look for other kind of measures of intelligence and reasoning as well, and to look to actively cultivate those within schools at the same time. Great. Um, Now, you talk to a lot of people for your book, uh, and I'm just wondering, what is your sense there in terms of uh, what are the main themes that emerge? Is it like just, because a lot of scientists, the way I think about it, uh, they say, well, uh, I do this little thing, and I mean, I think it's really, really big that nobody else is doing. But are there common themes that seem to be emerging when you look at uh, researchers who try to go beyond the classic intelligence testing? Yeah, I definitely think there are. And that was what was so fascinating for me while, while I was writing the book, is that these themes kind of emerged the more and more I did the research. I began to see how you know, people studying group performance, for instance, were finding the same 
kind of patterns that you're seeing in your measures of wise reasoning in the individual. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would say the the kind of elements of thinking that have turned out to be hugely important but have been neglected in the past would include this actively open-minded thinking, which touches on intellectual humility because people who are more actively open-minded are more likely to be able to accept that they're wrong and to look for evidence that might contradict themselves. And what you find is that this actively open-minded thinking predicts, for example, how well people perform in political forecasting. So that's the work of Philip Tetlock. And he found that the best forecasters were these actively open-minded people who look for different perspectives, admit when they're wrong, change their mind readily. Um, And that seemed to be a very close parallel to your research on on evidence-based wisdom, which uh, had shown that perspective taking and intellectual humility of this kind is also very important for our personal decision making. I would also say intellectual humility within itself has proven to be very important in the studies of group performance and team performance and collective intelligence. So mm-hmm. amongst leaders, for instance, if you have more intellectually humble leaders, that becomes kind of contagious and spreads to the whole of the team so that everyone becomes a little bit more likely to listen to other people and to accept their mistakes. And then that actually improves the whole group's performance as a result. So for me, those two elements were really the strongest parallels that I could see in the the kind of themes that ran throughout the book. That's really interesting because, you know, like uh, this past weekend, I was in Florence giving a workshop on, you know, the perils and the limitations of intelligence and the ways to go beyond that and how a lot of it is culturally situated. Yeah. Um, and, but the point is, I brought up this idea of humility. I guided people. Most of them were uh, educationists and uh, intercultural trainers. Uh, I guided them through the limitations of their current knowledge made them make some mistakes, uh, tried to show them uh, why it's so beneficial to recognize uh, your own limitations and be intellectually humble. And then they, uh, and then I asked questions and one of them raised their hand and right away said, well, you know, this is great, but in our culture, you say that we should be humble, but our culture tells us in Italy, and I think it's the same probably in Canada where you come from, uh, that we should uh, be certain that we should present ourselves as somebody who knows something because somebody who is uncertain mm. who is as is kind of embracing this humility and shows this openly uh, would be viewed as weak and meek uh, will and uh, not successful not somebody should, whom you should follow so have you encountered this type of arguments uh, when uh, when now you talk about uh, your book uh, what, what is your take on this how can we combat this uh, general narrative or, or is there a way to balance uh, certainty? <laughs> uh, yeah. Can one can one be? I guess I guess my question is: uh, Can one be firm yet intellectually humble? Or yeah, is that I mean, necessary? Yeah, that's totally something that I've heard from the people I've been interviewing. Is that even these researchers looking at kind of organizational psychology and uh, management science had found that even the very good leaders who are intellectually humble themselves, they don't really like the word humility because they feel like it takes away from their charisma in some way, that they need to be strong and Mm. certain. Um, So I do think we have this kind of cultural problem, especially I think in the UK and possibly America um, and maybe the rest of Europe, that to admit you're wrong is a sign of weakness. But I, I don't know the answer to how we can ensured that humility is 
more appreciated, but I think it's really important. And I actually think that if you look at the kind of politics in Britain at the moment with Brexit, if all of our politicians could just accept that maybe they themselves don't have the absolute right answer and they could admit their mistakes and listen to other people, Mm. we would be in a lot better position than we are now. Yeah, it's just like an interesting uh, uh, difficulty here. I think especially if you're in the leadership position, if you're a politician or uh, a leader in the private sector, uh, people are looking up to you. And uh, people want this kind of projection of certainty potentially because they are scared and they don't know what to do. And, And then if you will tell them, well, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't have the right answer either. Then that may be incredibly frustrating. So uh, I almost feel like there is almost an evolutionary argument that one can make for, you know, you want uh, your leaders in in, uh, in a time of uncertainty to project some kind of certainty, even though it is well adaptive, I guess, for the actual decision making. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I would say I have come across kind of bosses in my own career who I think managed to project confidence and humility at the same time. And they did that almost by making sure you're always aware of the bigger picture. So they would show that you can make individual mistakes, but as long as the overall uh, trajectory is improving, then that's what's important. And I felt like that was maybe a good happy medium between the two, where you it's a kind of positive message, but it also allows you to own up to your mistakes without feeling humiliated by that. It's um, you, you're talking about like in our culture, it's not it's not a sort of acceptable to unfortunately, even though you know you look at the data and it seems to be really helpful to making rational decisions. You know, intellectual humility still is it's a little bit behind the beat culturally. We're still not kind of yeah. celebrating it. But I, I I have read about um, Google making a big you know, proclamation that they look for intellectual humility in people they hire now. And I've actually read articles when they're trying to make that clear. So that's a bit of a cultural message, a bit of a change, you know, because people look up to Google as one of these sort of most open-minded, forward-thinking mm-hmm. companies. So mm-hmm. for them to be coming out and saying, this is what we're looking for, that that could be the inklings of a beginning of a, a cultural sort of turn. Yeah, I actually don't think so, guys, uh, because uh, uh, this comes from a conversation I just had on Monday. Uh, I was part of a roundtable discussion, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, people from uh, different fields came. And uh, one of the persons uh, who was talking, she isn't humanities, but she uh, works with uh, startups uh, who are part of this uh, Google-style Silicon Valley culture. And what she brought up, I was, I was talking about, you know, the merits of uh, humility and recognizing your limitations and that you may fail, that most of the experiments are probably false because that's just how science works and uh, and that we don't recognize this and that in our culture, actually, we want to be all certain. And she said, well, that's really interesting because in this startup world, including Google, and in, in Waterloo, Kitchener, Waterloo, it's all Google land because mm-hmm. we have the large Google uh, headquarters in Canada, uh, one of them. And she said that there, uh, a lot of the startup kids and often they're like younger adults, uh, they uh, have this mantra of failing. Oh, I'll be failing. I'll be failing so hard. Uh, like, I, I'm just waiting for my next fail. Because, yeah, uh, yeah did you fail, bro? And it's, it's, it's kind of this kind of bro culture, but at the same time, a failing culture, uh, which is very different because uh, I had very mixed feelings when I heard that because they didn't think about that before. So mm-hmm. there is an example of one subculture where people feel like failing is uh, uh, encouraged, but is I almost felt like if you want to fail so badly because that's just part of the culture, doesn't it then 
um, uh, lack that aversive component that you need in order to learn from your failures in the first place. So but anyways, but b- bottom line is for, I think for Google and Silicon Valley, that is an exception because in the, in the startup world, the way I was explained, it is very common to assume that your next product will not work immediately and there will be a highly iterative process of mu- multiple attempts to get it right. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, to go to talk about the kind of idea that these kind of people in startups are kind of failing repeatedly, and they're quite proud of the fact. I actually spoke to this guy called Andre Spicer, who also looks at organizational science. And he said that in itself is a problem because the often they'll say like fail forward or, you know, um, oh, that's that right, kind yeah. of idea. But it's all a little bit misguided because what yeah. these people aren't doing, like you said, they're not looking kind of internally for what I could have done better. They actually create all these reasons like, oh, you know, the world wasn't ready for my great idea yet. You know, they're kind <laughs> of looking outwards for the reasons rather than inwards. Um, so they're not really learning from it. So it sounds humble, that kind of attitude. But sometimes I think it can still come with a kind of arrogance attached to it as well, which is not what you want. Yeah, so if Google is listening to us, uh, or anybody from Google, if you want to have a slightly different perspective to intellectual humility, maybe we can talk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the other issue here is um, about the, uh, so we talked about the large institutions, and uh, we talked about maybe Google is trying to do something in the right direction, but that may be misguided, but who knows? Uh, This is just some baby steps. But what about the general public response to these ideas? So when you present insights from your book, are are they receptive uh, to the idea that intelligence is not everything? Uh, What are the, what kind of feedback have you gotten so far? You know, I've been really delighted with the responses. Uh, So I had one cardiologist who is quite Mm -hmm. keen to look at wise reasoning within medicine in more detail because he said he's really certain that he sees these kinds of behaviours all around him. Um, The same with I've heard from, you know, people who work in investment and finance. I think it's what the book does almost is helps to articulate some common patterns of behaviour that people have been aware of but haven't maybe been able to explain or understand or put a kind of term on it um Mm. so that's what i've been Mm -hmm. really pleased that the book seems to be giving people a vocabulary to Mm. talk about these problems openly and to think about how they themselves can change their own behaviors and how they could change the culture of the people around them uh so that's been very very encouraging for me great so what yeah i mean that's the that's the kind of we're we're going into the final straight now what what is it you know people be probably sitting there by now going yeah it's a lot of theory i mean i'm a busy man a busy woman i've got places to be what what can i actually do because it all sounds brilliant i buy it so obviously they can read your book and there's a huge amount of information there but like can you sort of distill it down to some things that people can do that might that might help what could people actually do Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much that people can do. So I would say one really effective method, which I'm sure you've discussed already on the Wisdom podcast, but uh, it's worth mentioning again, is this idea of self-distancing. So trying to occupy an outside perspective when you're thinking about your own problems or even big political issues like Brexit, to kind of imagine yourself almost as being a fly on the wall that isn't personally involved. You know, reading about Igor's fantastic work in that area, that just seemed like such a quick and practical method of increasing your wise reasoning um, and escaping a lot of these problems like the motivated reasoning that I Mm. talked about earlier. So I think that is one 
very powerful technique. Um, the other is also that idea of training your emotion differentiation mm. to take a few minutes each day to be quite reflective about how you're feeling and to just always be conscious that the more precise you are in pinning down those feelings, the more rational your uh, your decisions can be later on in the day. And the final point that I would say is that um, the book talks a lot about kind of fake news and misinformation and the ways that we're often swayed by messages that are cognitively fluent, they're easy to process, mm. uh, but we don't really look at the details within those messages. And there's some really great work on cognitive inoculation, kind of learning how information is presented and how that will affect your decision making. Um, and that can kind of offer you a vaccination against all of this misinformation. So I would say look into that work, maybe try to read something like the work of Carl Sagan on his sceptical reasoning. Um, and his mm-hmm. baloney detection kit, mm-hmm. um, that can kind of protect you against lots of different forms of bad decision-making. So, I mean, zooming out a little bit, what uh, if, if say, for example, you know, Theresa May gets ousted and they say, Mr. Mm-hmm. Robson, your time has come. You now, you have the budget. <laughs> you you can decide, um, you know, how resources are spent in, say, education or, you know, in, in uh, uh, commerce. Uh, what would you like to be seeing done that could sort of take this research and, and change things at that level? What 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 would be, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, you never know. It's Friday. It's, we're leaving the European Union. So <laughs> hope you've got your week, weekend cleared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, feel quite strongly that these that these kind of themes should be presented in education from a young age so children i think aren't necessarily taught to think deeply about problems not in this kind of way they're not taught to kind of take perspectives and to be intellectually honest necessarily or intellectually humble you know even in art subjects you're kind of taught to create the argument um, or Mm. to come to a conclusion and then create the argument to support that conclusion. Mm. Um, Whereas I do think we could try harder in all kinds of subjects to increase the intellectual humility of children to let them know that it's all right to admit you don't know everything and that can actually improve your decision making. So all of those kinds of Mm. methods, I think, could be incorporated into the classroom. And I think at the end of it, you would have much wiser reasoners uh, as well as uh, potentially a greater factual knowledge too as a result. Because what the evidence to date suggests is that actually encouraging uh, children to think deeply about subjects isn't a distraction from the kind of memorising of the facts. It actually helps with the memorising of the facts. Right. Well, you've given us lots to think about. Um, <laughs> David, thank you so much for uh, everything. It's been, it, we, we promised ourselves we would make this a short, snappy episode and we have broke that promise in many, many ways. We failed. We failed. We, we're so proud. We failed. Yeah. Whoa. Um, not in the Google way, in the sort of intellectual, <laughs> humble way. Um, but thank you very much for, uh, yeah, I've, I have um, tried to take some of these ideas already into my life. I'm kind of, particularly that emotional vocabulary thing, I'm trying to get more precise about the way I describe my emotions. Um, but uh, you'll have to tune in for future episodes to find out how successful i've been on that but thank you very much it's been fascinating thank you so much david thank you yeah i've really enjoyed it thanks and here's the summary for today's episode today we talked about the relationship of intelligence rationality and wisdom intelligence the way it is defined by standard iq test is not enough to make a wise judgment sometimes really smart people can make very foolish mistakes Wisdom, to some extent, also depends on paying attention to your emotions instead of just being rational and cold calculator. For instance, those people who pay more attention to their emotional experiences can sometimes make intuitively better 
judgment. At the end, we talked about the relationship of intelligence and wisdom in the context of how it is taught, in the context of how it is implemented, and in the context of how it may be desired or not so desired by the general population. Speculating about ways to increase focus on wisdom rather than just intelligence, the way it is classically defined in organizations, in schools, and in general life. And that's all for today. Stay tuned for another episode on the Own Wisdom podcast, and please continue rating us on iTunes. <laughs>